Good morning, afternoon or evening. Hello and welcome back to the EuropaLex podcast. I am Ewan Healy and with me, of course, is my fantastic friend and colleague, Gabriel Hedengren. Gabriel, how are you this week? Hi, Ewan. Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I've had my second vaccine dose last weekend, so I'm still buzzing. I went into the office today, believe it or not, in London. So I had a little commute for the first time in like four or five months. So yeah, positive for once. Things are moving in the right direction in the UK for now. Let's see how long it lasts. But how are you? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you. Yeah, it's things are opening up again here. On Monday, they open up shops and restaurants and bars. And I'm very excited for a pint. Um, I'm thinking about a pint of Guinness like a lot. <laughs> takes up a lot of my mental energy during the week. So I'm very excited about that. But the weather's been fantastic here. So today I sat in a park and read political theory in the oh, sun. That was my day today. Lovely. And it was fantastic. <laughs> I know. Well, we've got a very exciting episode coming up for all of you listeners. Uh, Gabriel sat down with Altin Jitta, a political researcher at the Albanian Centre for Good Governance, in an interview about the upcoming parliamentary elections and the state of things in the Western Balkan country. And we've all got bags of news coming up. We've got a busy few weeks of elections coming up with some really interesting events going on. But first, of course, here is a word about how you can support the headlines you're about to hear. EuropeLex is run by volunteers. We aren't funded by any big donors and everything we do, including this podcast, is only possible with the help of our supporters. And we always want to do more. We've started sharing exclusive discussions, special content, and much more via our Patreon. Access all that from as little as just one euro per month. So don't miss out. Support us by becoming a patron on Patreon. So yeah, let's start out with our news bulletin for this episode. So we're going to kick off uh, talking about Neuchâtel in Switzerland. We don't often cover Neuchâtel, but it's uh, a canton in the French-speaking part of Switzerland. And on the 14th of April, uh, the inhabitants of Neuchâtel went out to elect five members of their Conseil d'État, which is the executive branch of the canton, and the 100 representatives uh, in its grand council. So that's the legislative body. That's a reduction in seats since the last elections four years ago, with another difference for all those nerds out there being that they've decided to now use open lists and proportional representation in the Grand Council. So in terms of the results, the vote for the Executive Council ended up with no candidate managing to get the sufficient amount of votes to be elected in this round. So there'll be a second one in June. However, the voters seemed to very much go for the status quo, with the top three performers being incumbents, so two from the Liberal FDP, the Liberals, and one from the Central-Left Socialist Party. It does, however, indicate that there might be a shift towards the Liberal Party's favour in Neuchâtel. And there was also a slight shift toward the centre-right in the legislative elections, where a coalition is likely to be formed by FDP, the Liberals, that want a plurality, the struggling right-wing Swiss People's Party, a newly formed centre-right party called the Centre, which is sort of a breakup from the classic Christian Democratic Party, and uh, the Green Liberals, uh, who were the big winners of the election, uh, doubling the amount of seats they have in the in the chamber. So together, all these parties secured a meek two-seat majority, uh, compared to a one-seat majority they had in 2017. So a very tiny shift in their direction, but still, I guess, sort of uh, living up to this current trend of quite centrist tendencies in, in elections. A big 
issue in these elections as well that were interesting to follow was the topic of women's representation in politics. So Neuchâtel is seen as one of the more progressive cantons of Switzerland, which obviously has a past of not being very progressive when it comes to women in politics. But that said, Neuchâtel was the first canton to grant women the right to vote, which was uh, very late in European standards um, in the 1950s. But even so, it was a scandal when it seemed likely that an all-male executive could be elected this time around. However, following some reshuffling of lists, etc., it seems unlikely after last weekend's vote, or for the first time also, a majority of the candidates elected to the Grand Council were female. So there, there was this huge jump where 58 out of 100 of the elected politicians are now women. So that's obviously a great majority and much higher than in, in most elected uh, assemblies in, in Europe. So yeah, some interesting news from Neuchâtel. We'll see if we ever uh, come back to how their politics pan out over the coming years. There's always there's always something political to talk about in Switzerland. It's such a, well, they vote a lot. Direct democracy does be like that sometimes. Yeah. I think I've been to Neuchâtel. I was just looking it up there online and I think I've been. Oh, really? Because I recognise the castle. But yeah. I don't know. Anyway. It's beautiful with the with the lake, uh, Lake Neuchâtel Lake, I believe. and. Yeah, so wish them all wish them all the best in Neuchâtel. Yeah, m- m- most of Switzerland is beautiful. They're very lucky as a nation. In more electoral news and another beautiful country, we're going to go to Albania, where this coming Sunday people will be heading to the polls to elect members of the country's 140-seat parliament. Corruption is again a really big issue in this election, given that this was the issue on which Prime Minister Edi Rama was elected back in 2013. Now, the Rama government has been criticised for losing the so-called war against corruption, as well as for using nationalism to rally supporters and openly talking about unification with Kosovo. Rama has also accused the European Commission of interfering in the domestic election campaign in favour of the opposition parties. Now, this is the first election since changes were made to and by the Albanian parliament to the constitution last year, in which MPs will be elected by open lists using proportional representation, another move to open lists, which I, as an electoral systems nerd, love. Now, Rama's governing centre-left socialist party, which is affiliated with the socialists and Democrats, naturally, has been leading in the polls throughout most of this year with a coalition of the EPP-affiliated centre-right Democratic Party led by Luzim Basha following not so far behind. Expected to retain its third position, but with a significant loss of seats as the centre-left Socialist Movement for Integration, LSI is the domestic acronym, which has had an agreement with the Democratic Party against Rama in recent months. The race has tightened a lot with the Socialist Party having close to no allies in other political parties. They would probably need not only a plurality, but actually a majority in order to be able to form a third Rama government because no one is willing to partner with them. Obviously, for more context on these elections, stick around for our interview at the end of the episode with Altin Jetta. Yeah, definitely do. It's really interesting uh, speaking to him about what seems like quite a monumental election in Albania where there's a, there's a potential for for regime change, definitely. Uh, but yeah, definitely very high stakes there. And obviously, whenever it's um, about corruption, it's it's always heated. So now we're going to move to Madrid, where the political temperature is definitely rising as the May 4th regional elections are getting ever closer. The elections were called when the center-right Partido Popular's Isabel Diaz Ayuso kicked her liberal Ciudadanos partners from the regional government following the Murcia government being brought down by Ciudadanos and the centre-left PSOE. 
According to the latest polls, the center-right Partido Popular is getting around 40% of the votes and will likely win the race, while the far-right party Vox is polling at around 10%, strengthening the scenario of a possible right-wing bloc between PP, as they're known, and Vox in order to secure a majority. Meanwhile, the liberal Ciudadanos are polling close to one-fourth of their previous results, and Pablo Iglesias, leader of the left-wing Podemos, has resigned from the national government to run as a candidate in the upcoming election with the UP party. A total of six parties are running in the local elections of Spain's richest region. That's also been the one most harshly affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. And it's very much a sense that the election result can affect the governing coalition in the entire country. It's definitely a sense of flux in terms of who partners with who. And then there's obviously this dramatic drop in support for Ciudadanos um, in recent years that I'm sure you all know about by now. Uh, so definitely a uh, Keep following our channels for polls and then the results uh, of the elections coming up in a few weeks. Definitely high drama once again and uh, something that will have consequences for, for sure for Spanish politics. Yeah, absolutely. And another country with regional elections coming up is the UK, where both Gabriel and I live, with a very big ticket election day coming up on the 6th of May, which some have called Super Thursday, as it will feature essentially two election days rolled into one. That's this year's elections and all of the elections that were postponed last year because of the pandemic. Now, voters across three of the United Kingdom's four constituent countries will go to the polls with the fourth Northern Ireland not voting until next year, 2022. So let's just run down what elections are going to be taking place in which regions. Now, Scotland and Wales will both see their regional parliaments elected for the first time since 2006. 16, while voters in England will elect municipal level councils plus regional mayors in all of the major cities of England. This will include the UK's capital city, London, where incumbent centre-left mayor Sadiq Khan, the first Muslim to be elected mayor of a Western European capital, is seeking a second term. However, this election is hardly a nail-biter as Khan is expected to take somewhere between 45 and 55% of the vote, potentially being the first ever London mayor to be elected without a runoff in history if he achieves more than 50% plus one of first preferences in that election. In Wales, the regional head of government, also from the centre-left Labour Party, politician called Mark Drakeford, will seek election for the first time following his predecessor's resignation in 2018. Pro-Welsh Independence Party Plaid Cymru, the Party of Wales in English, are hoping to perform well, potentially even taking enough seats from Labour to deny them a majority, hoping to win an independence referendum for Wales in coalition negotiations with the incumbent Labour Party. Finally, in Scotland, popular pro-independence head of the regional government there, Nicola Sturgeon, is expected to be re-elected again, with the main drama in that election coming as to whether the Labour Party will be able to retake second place in the regional parliament from Prime Minister Boris Johnson's Conservative Party. It really does look like the, the SNP, which is Nicola Sturgeon's party, member of the EFA group in the European Parliament, are going to either win an outright majority alone or just shy again as they did in 2016. While fought mostly on local and regional issues, these elections are being seen as a real test for the new leaderships of a couple of parties nationally. That's the Liberal Centrist Party, the Liberal Democrats, led by new leader Ed Davey, and the centre-left Labour Party, led by Keir Starmer, who have both been struggling in the polls of late. Now, I'm going to be leading a Patreon Q&A about the UK elections in the run-up to this election's over on our Patreon account. So do subscribe there if you want to hear more about the selections or ask any questions to me or colleagues about what to expect. So they could have big knock-on effects for both Welsh and Scottish potential 
breakaways from the United Kingdom. Yeah, definitely. I'm super, super exciting to see how, how it's all going to pan out. And also for the both of us, I guess, our first sort of COVID slash post-COVID um, election. Uh, so that'll be an experience. Do you know if you'll be going to the, the polling station, Ewan, or are you doing a postal vote? I will be going to the polling station. I should have got a postal vote, sort of logically, but instead I just wanted to go to the... I just love voting. So I, I didn't want to give up the opportunity to be able to go to my local polling station, which is just around the corner from my house. So, um, yeah, it's probably not the best tactic, but I just I just love to vote, you know? Same. No, yeah, I'm going to bring my own pen and go and vote at the local station. So that's going to be fun. <laughs> so... Let's touch briefly on Moldova, so way on the other side of our lovely European continent. Following the Constitutional Court's ruling, a new parliamentary election will take place within the next three months in Moldova, with centre-right president Maya Sandu's former party, PAS, or Party of Action and Solidarity, expected to fare well. The Party of Socialists of the Republic of Moldova, or PSRM, is on the other hand expected to lose support and was therefore against the dissolution of parliament by President Sandu. So yeah, another election added to our calendar, so keep posted for opinion polls in the lead up to that, and we'll obviously report the results as well. We know a lot of you care about the the performance of, of Maya Sandu, who's, I guess, become this weirdly popular political figure at least in our feeds you and yeah absolutely a weird sort of cult of personality over yeah. a president from a, a very small eastern european nation it's very exciting but yeah definitely some people are perhaps too enthusiastic <laughs> yeah. and from moldova we go to germany where the race to be the next angela merkel has begun to hot up ahead of elections in september on the 19th of April, the German Green Party selected co-leader Annalena Baerbock to be their candidate for the head of government position. Noteworthy, of course, due to the party's upward polling trajectory in recent weeks, including one poll which showed the Green Party ahead of the CDU for the first time ever. So lots to watch in this election there. And Annalena Baerbock will be pretty excited, I would imagine, the potential of the coming election. Meanwhile, conflict within the incumbent CDU-CSU alliance has Flared as factions compete over whether the candidate for Chancellor should be the CDU's Armin Laschet or the CSU's Marcus Söder. Daily talks between representatives took place for at least a week, with Armin Laschet eventually winning out. He's the current regional head of government in North Rhine-Westphalia, and he won in a very late-night vote of the party board. There, Laschet won 31 votes to Söder's nine. In what was only an indicative vote, it wasn't binding, but Marcus Suda agreed to withdraw himself from the running to be their chancellor candidate, uh, leaving Laschet to take the lead and be selected. All eyes are now on Laschet. He is very much Merkel's chosen successor ahead of these elections, but the leader is, of course, facing real struggles in CDU's and the CSU's polling numbers, and so it'll be a big fight for him to make sure that he becomes the leader of the next Bundestag. Yeah, again, I keep saying this about every story, but how exciting. <laughs> and Maybe this is probably the most consequential thing happening right now in terms of European uh, politics, I guess. So it'll definitely be interesting uh, to see how the next month pan out as that campaign starts ramping up once they've decided on these um, candidates. So now let's touch on Czechia. So the government of Andrzej Babish suffers two major hits this month in what could be a new serious predicament for the Czech cabinet. 
Firstly, the Social Democrats' foreign minister, Tomas Petricek, was fired by President Milos Seman, claiming he was ousted from office due to his criticism of Seman's affinity towards China and Russia. The Czech president had voiced his support towards Russia's participation in the Dukovani nuclear power plant. Russia was excluded when suspicions were raised on the eastern superpower's involvement in a 2014 ammunition depot explosion. Within the cabinet, Petricek also launched staunch attacks towards the prime minister and to his own party's re-elected chairman, Jan Hamacek, questioning the Czech Social Democratic Party's role in the ruling cabinet. Hamacek is now also the acting foreign minister, besides holding the Ministry of the Interior portfolio. The second episode facing the Czech government this week was the end of the Czech Communist Party's external support for the incumbent government being uh, withdrawn as a result of divergences over policy. Uh, this includes the government's failure to deliver on the creation of a state-owned bank responsible for lending to local authorities and businesses. Um, however, uh, nonetheless, the Communist Party states it won't send forward any motion of no confidence against Babish's cabinet, while they may support such a vote if proposed by the opposition. But yeah, still, obviously, uh, a lot of different crises for the for the government in Czechia to um, grapple with, so we'll see if that has any impact on their polling. And um, on that note, we should move on to some more uh, polling-related news, Yuan. Yeah, absolutely. Time to give you a quick roundup of the highs and lows of this week. Now, one of the polling situations we're watching very closely is obviously in Albania. As we mentioned earlier, the race is looking tighter than in previous elections, with the governing Socialist Party continuing to lead, sitting somewhere between 46 and 50% in recent polls. The centre-right Democratic Party looks set to significantly increase its 2017 results of 29%, polling somewhere right now between 39 and 44%. The only other party polling at any significant level is the centre-left Socialist Party of Integration, which polls somewhere between 5 and 6%. Beyond Albania, something we've touched on already as well, that's obviously a big focus at the moment for a lot of you, I'm sure, is um, the UK. So in Scotland, the pro-independence Scottish National Party continues to enjoy a wide lead, with some disagreement between pollsters as to how large it really is. Recent polls have put the party anywhere between 39 and 47 percent in the proportional list ballot, which is, uh, in any case, far ahead of the Conservatives in second place, who are more consistently polling between 21 and 22 percent. The combined share of pro-independence parties has also consistently been above 50 percent, ranging between 51 to 53 percent. In Scotland, there's just been one poll from Wales since the election campaign began there, suggesting a strong assault for the governing Labour Party. In the proportional vote, the Labour lead with 40%, followed by the Conservatives on 30 and Plaid Cymru on 19%. Uh, this would be enough to put Labour close to a majority in Wales. But as Ewan said, it could get very interesting there if they'll have if they'll need to negotiate, uh, most likely with Plaid Cymru to, to get that majority. Now, quickly onto a summary of the records in polling that we've seen this week or this last couple of weeks. Now, a Forza poll in Germany has blown the German federal election race wide open and has placed Greens in first place with 28% ahead of the centre-right Christian Democratic Union, who are now down to 21%. This marks a nine-year high for the Greens and an astonishing all-time low for the Christian Democrats, who announced Armin Laschet, as I said, their new chancellor candidate on the same day as this poll was conducted. This is, of course, just one poll and there's five months to go, but we are really, really excited for what this could mean for the future 
future of Germany. And maybe for the first time ever, we would have a chancellor who's not from the big two centre-left and centre-right parties. And of course, who will be in the coalitions if that is the case? Lots to watch out there. Now, moving on quickly from the soaring heights there in Germany, now we're going to go to a a crashing, crashing low just across the border in the Netherlands, where the Dutch Green Party, Green Links, Green Left, has fallen to its lowest polling figure since 2015 with just 4% of the vote. The same poll showed the new National Conservative uh, JA21 reaching a record high on 4%. Finally, in Slovenia, the centre-right Nova Slovenia, New Slovenia party reached a record high of 11.6%, increasing 4.4% since its 2018 election result, its best election result to date. And finally, we're going to go to Cyprus, where a new party has shown up in the polls uh, ahead of the parliamentary elections there in May. So the party that we'll abbreviate as AGTK, or uh, Famagusta for Cyprus, was shown to receive 1.9% of the vote in its first appearance in a poll on April 11th. And uh, then it got 1.2% in another poll last Tuesday. The party has a unique starting point as it focuses on the need to push for the reunification of the island as a federal state, starting with the handing over to the UN of the fenced-off ghost city of Barosha, a district of the city of Famagusta, controlled by Turkish troops since 1974, and its repopulation starting with the Greek Cypriots displaced during that war. It has differentiated itself by adopting positions on all issues, from corruption to the environment, and opening itself to cooperation with Turkish uh, Cypriot citizen movements. So yeah, very interesting, of course, uh, this close to their election to see a new party with uh, such a radical stance appears. So we'll see how their campaign goes in the next month or so and whether they can they can have an impact uh, electorally. Absolutely. Yeah. And in our final news segment this week, we just wanted to highlight a really important story regarding media freedom and democracy in Europe, which is something that we really think is really important, obviously, highlight as we have done um, earlier in Belarus in the past. Um, now we're going to talk again about Belarus, where the Lukashenko regime has not renewed Euronews, a major European broadcaster's broadcast permit for the state, citing the fact that the network's Russian language service was broadcasting adverts in English instead of translating them into Russian or Belarusian. Euronews itself has said that it had not been notified of the decision or the reasoning behind it. According to a statement issued by the Belarus Ministry of Information, the channel was going to be replaced by the broadcast of Russian programs in World War II. Opposition leader Svetlana Tsinaskaya has said that this was obviously an attack on an independent media. More recently, Russian security forces have arrested two people in Moscow in connection with an alleged US-planned coup and assassination attempt. Belarus's security services announced the dismantling of a quote-unquote special operation for the physical elimination of the Lukashenko family. However, obviously this is unverified, but there's still movements against democracy, strong movements against democracy going on there after obviously the rigged election last August, which saw the real winner, Svetlana Sinaskaya, fleeing the country for her safety. And we are obviously really troubled by events such as this. The undermining of the free press is a really important uh, freedom for Belarusians, and we will be watching this very carefully, as I'm sure the European Union and other important institutions will be too. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast and want to help us grow, be sure to subscribe and drop us a review on whatever platform it is you're listening to us on. And of course, tell your friends, your fellow political nerds all about us. That would mean the absolute world. We love making this podcast and we love it when you guys love it. So if you've got an idea for a segment, thoughts on a topic that we should be covering, or even if you just want to say hi to us, drop us an email at podcast at europolex.eu.
Hi everyone, so with me now to discuss the upcoming elections in Albania, I'm very happy to say is Altin Ceta, uh, who's a politics researcher at the Albanian Centre for Good Governance. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Altin. Thank you, Gabriel. It's a pleasure talking to you today. Yeah, likewise. So the election is coming up soon. So I just thought we'd we'd go through sort of the, the current state of politics in Albania and, and what sort of the options are for the Albanian electorate this year. So obviously there's person, the prime minister of Albania, Edi Rama, around which politics very much circulates. He's been uh, in his position as prime minister since 2013. Uh, when his socialist alliance um, won uh, a landslide election with with uh, an alliance or a wider list, but they got 58% that one time. Uh, then in 2017, the alliance went back somewhat, but his own party, the Socialist Party, still gained. And since then, they have their own majority uh, in the parliament. Uh, so he's very much been a strong man for the past eight years or so. Just to kick off, I, I thought I'd ask you, what about him and his politics is it that has appealed to so many Albanians. So both in 2013 and 2017, obviously he's very polarizing and there's a lot of uh, legitimate criticism of him, but what is it about him and the Socialist Party that still gets a lot of Albanians to vote for them, would you say? Well, uh, to know Mr. Rama, I think that you have to dig a little bit back uh, when he entered in politics in the beginning of 2000s. He uh, returned in Albania from France and became the Minister of Culture and Sport in 1998. And then in 2000, he was elected mayor of Tirana, a position uh, he held for, for three consecutive terms up to 2011. So I think that uh, uh, he initially gained power uh, when he was mayor of Tirana by getting close to him a bunch of uh, uh, rich people who I think supported him financially and politically. But in 2005, uh, the opportunity arose when the Socialist Party, then uh, led by Mr. Fatos Nano, the former prime minister, uh, lost elections and Mr. Rama was elected the leader of the SP. And then he started his uh, bid to become prime minister of Albania. Initially, Rama was quite appealing to people because he was different from other politicians. He was young, he was interesting. His uh, communication and appearing style was unique somehow. So people uh, liked Rama then. And there were uh, big hopes that he would bring change in Albania. However, in 2013, as you said, he was elected for the first time prime minister and people were expecting from him to uh, undertake uh, structural reforms to strengthen democracy in Albania, improve the economy and accelerate EU integration of the country. But unfortunately, totally contrary happened. Uh, uh, Mr. Rama uh, soon uh, starting to uh, started to have problems with corruption and his government uh, failed uh, to fight corruption and organized crime. Also, his government started exhibiting major flaws in, in uh, recovering uh, economy and reforming, uh, reforming the different sectors in economy. Also, paradoxically, he started having clashes with media and uh, he, he literally transformed from a liberal politician to an illiberal one and, how, and started uh, collecting uh, more and more power on his hands. So 
I guess in terms of the base, then just to, to, to go back a bit for for our listeners, uh, the Socialist Party, what's its base currently in Albania? I'm sure he's he has a core support among them that are sort of loyal to the party, no matter what. But could you paint sort of a profile of Socialist Party voters and that part of the electorate that that continue to support him? Yeah, yeah, that's interesting because I think you. Uh... People should know that the Socialist Party is the successor of the Labour Party, the Communist Party that ruled Albania after the World War II. And uh, the SP has uh, uh, a strong support among, uh, among uh, certain uh, layer social groups of the population in Albania, which somehow are um, um, nostalgic about the, the Communist regime. And this is the strongest uh, base of supporters the SP has, and they amount uh, uh, roughly to 500,000 voters, which are very uh, trustworthy to the SP. But uh, I think that in these elections, after spending eight years in power, I think that a lot of uh, people in Albania are disappointed from Rama, including um, socialist members and uh, socialist party supporters so we have to uh, wait and see what will happen on sunday so i thought we'd delve a bit deeper into into corruption so in your recent article for balkan insight you paint a picture of albania that many people share you know as a democracy in decline obviously albania is a relatively uh, new um democracy uh, of sorts, especially from a Western European perspective. Uh, you say that the country has lost its battle against corruption. You refer to it as being in a captive state at the moment. And obviously you point to a lot of voter fraud and intimidation. This is obviously something that has deep roots, as you say, in, in the Communist Party past and something that uh, Eddie Rama himself said he was going to uh, work against when he, when he took power um, from previous regime. Can you discuss a bit the history of corruption in Albania and how and why it's gotten worse in your view um, since Eddie Rama took over in 2013? Well, Albania in general, um, after the 90s, when it started its democratic transition, has uh, constantly exhibited problems as far as corruption is concerned. And fortunately, when Rama came in power in 2013, he promised, he promised to uh, fight corruption, but since the inception, his government didn't show a willingness to fight corruption. And as a result, uh, the country ended up uh, worsening in this respect. And uh, his government, I think, totally lost the battle against corruption, which now seems endemic in every level of government. For example, there are um, international reports, international organization reports that point out that corruption in Albania has been increasing, is widespread, and just recently the Transparency International and Institute for Democracy and Mediation, a think tank based in Tirana, uh, described Albania as a captured state where tailor-made laws are passed in the parliament to benefit private interest at the expense of the public interest. So, uh, it has really, Albania has really been sliding back as uh, far as corruption is concerned. Also, uh, the fact that the government has been uh, shutting down and closing down media outlets that has criticized its work uh, is a telling uh, 
think about the uh, the worsening of corruption in, in the country? So with that in mind, I was, I was just interested in your view because I was looking at the democracy index. So the Economist has a democracy index that for a long time labeled Albania as a hybrid regime. But if you look at what, what they're reporting, they've moved the country up a notch in 2020 to a flawed democracy. Would you say that that paints a, a wrong view of what's actually happening in Albania? Well, I was quite um, um, quite surprised by the Economist Index on Democracy because I don't think that uh, really gets the real situation here. And I will give you just an example to exemplify the worsening of the democracy in Albania. Albania has been unable to uh, hold free and fair elections recently and uh, Mr. Rama, Rama's government has been the biggest spoiler of fairness and, uh, and freeness of elections. And you just need to uh, look at the German tabloid build uh, wiretapes released uh, two or three years ago, where SP mayors, uh, ministers, uh, and MPs were called uh, intimidating voters to vote for the SP. And uh, a massive uh, vote-buying scheme was uncovered, which uh, points out, which, which shows that Albania has been unable to hold free and fair elections, which is uh, uh, the basic of a functioning democracy. And I don't think that the economist has really uh, got that point. Also, uh, to make the matter worse, Albania has been sliding back as uh, far as freedom of expression is concerned. Uh, the government, this government, Rama's government, insisted to uh, pass an anti-defamation package in the parliament two years ago, which uh, intended to curb the freedom of uh, expression and media in, in, in the country. And international uh, organizations uh, uh, concerning freedom of uh, media and expression expressed their concerns about this, including the Venice Commission and OSC as well uh, raised concerns and uh, warned the government to uh, postpone and uh, redraft the, the package because it would uh, harm freedom of uh, press and expression in the country. So these are really uh, concerning events that have been happening during Rama's government. And the thing is that uh, Mr. Rama doesn't doesn't really want to step back from these events, and he and he continues defending uh, this package and uh, downplaying, for example, Bill's accusations and wiretapes uh, on uh, electrical fraud committed by senior Socialist Party MPs and uh, ministers. So I thought we'd discuss now the other side of Albanian politics. Obviously, there's an opposition still. The main opposition against Edi Rama is the Democratic Party of Albania, which is a pro-European center-right party. They're affiliated with the European People's Party. And in recent years, it's obviously been extremely critical of the current government laying forward um, the accusations that that you've brought up here. They've also led, you know, serious and massive protests against this erosion of democracy. What has its campaign this year been like? Has it been completely focused on issues of democracy? Or are there any more ideological policy issues that are cutting through and that sort of separate voters along those lines? Or would you say it's very much now between Eddie Rama 
versus the opposition. As you said, the main opposition party is the Democratic Party, it's a right-wing uh, conservative party. Uh, it's a party that has been in power uh, for 13 years uh, since the fall of the communist regime in Albania. And uh, its leader is Mr. Basha, Lunzim Basha, a senior minister uh, of uh, Mr. Berisha's cabinet, the former leader of the Democratic Party. And he is running in a broad coalition with other minor parties, opposition parties, and uh, the Socialist Movement for Integration Party, which is a left-leaning party, but it is in a coalition with the, with the DP. And they're running again against this backdrop. Uh, the DP and Mr. Luzin Pasha has delivered a political manifesto where he pledges to uh, restore democracy, bring back economic growth, fight corruption and organized crime, and, and also reform education and healthcare system. It, it is a party that has proved itself in the past. Uh, it has undertaken some uh, stringent reforms and it has uh, approached Albania with the EU, uh, with the EU and has accelerated the integration process, but uh, during the last term when it was in power, it started again exhibiting uh, some flaws as far as corruption is concerned and uh, also uh, kind of um, falling into authoritarian patterns, uh, which were the main factors that ousted from power. So now we, they have a new leader, they have a new leadership, and I think that they have the chances to win this election and open a new chapter for Albania. But of course, um, I think that um, uh, other um, factors should be taken into consideration if we are talking about uh, restoring the democracy in Albania and uh, improving the political process in the country. So obviously, as you say, corruption's been an issue ever since democratization. And obviously, as you say, the Democratic Party is also, it has a history. And you can argue that, you know, in a country like Albania, corruption might become sort of endemic. I guess I'm curious that, are you confident that with a power shift, it will mean meaningful change in this area. Are you confident that the Democratic Party of Albania will take these issues more seriously now than they were during their final years before Eddie Rama took over? I guess is my question. Do you, do you believe that they've done that work and that, that it will they won't fall back into their old pattern? Well, I, I do believe that um, ousting Rama from power is the precondition of um, ushering a new, uh, new start Albania. And I think that getting DP in power, I think, is a good start uh, because that would, um, that would break down uh, nepotic linkages that this government has been uh, building up, that would uh, bring fresh air in the room, and that would uh, facilitate and open up the dialogue between political parties. Uh, because the DP is led by a new leader, a leader that has studied in the West, is the first leader that uh, is aiming to become prime minister that didn't finish his university uh, university studies in the communist Albania. He studied in Holland, in Utrecht, studied law, is well educated, is a pro-European 
uh, undoubtedly. And I think that the, ch the chances are good that the country will um, take a new direction. But I don't think that the uh, mere fact that we will have a new government will change uh, things uh, per se. I think that Mr. Barsha faces uh, at least two challenges. He has to get rid of the old guard within the party uh, who has impeded his uh, leadership and his bid to reform the party and democratize the party. And as, as well, I think that Mr. Basha faces a major challenge to end the uh, prolonged, bumpy uh, transition of Albania. And I think that uh, uh, he can do that. But firstly, I think that he should change things uh, within his, his party. Great. So I just have, uh, I'm going to let you go soon. I know it's, it's, it's lunchtime, but I had two quick fire questions for you. First of all, do you think it's very likely that there'll be a, a, a government shift in, in Albania after these elections? Yes, definitely. I think that the opposition will win elections by a sufficient margin to, to govern the country. And if that happens, by when do you think Albania will join the EU? Do you think that is realistic? And do you have a sort of time frame? that you'd, you'd think of? That's a $1 million question. <laughs> if things uh, continue working as uh, they have been doing in the past years, I think that Albania will have to wait for, unfortunately, 15 to 20 years to join the EU. But I think that if the next government uh, takes things seriously, uh, fights uh, corruption, and organized crime, uh, restore the check and balance principle, set up a new um, constitution that ensures that powers are checked and balanced and builds up institutions that function and also uh, return the public's trust on elections. I think that the chances are higher that Albania will join the EU by the end of this decade. Thank you, Altin, for, for speaking with us and for giving us all this context um, ahead of the, the upcoming elections. Obviously, we'll be covering them and, and releasing the, the results um, throughout the day, as well as voter turnout data and, and all of that. So our listeners should definitely keep posted. It's, it's a country maybe that a lot of Europeans don't know much about and don't follow, but it is interesting and it's definitely from a European Union perspective, quite uh, consequential how this goes. So thank you for giving us all that context and, um, and have a good day, Altin. It was great talking to you, Gabriel. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the EuropeLex podcast. To stay up to date with European politics, make sure you subscribe and of course follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and YouTube. You can find us at EuropeLex.eu and at EuropeLex across all social media and at Europe underscore Lex on Instagram. See you next time. You've been listening to the EuropeLex podcast hosted by Ewan Healy and Gabriel Hedengren. The managing editor was Polychronus Karimpolis. The producer and audio engineers were Rafael Peñorios and Leon Lizana. The script was written by our hosts and our writing team, Matthew Nicholson, Yorgos Kakuris, and Guillermo Ferreira de Senda. The music was by Jose Alvarado, and everything we do couldn't be possible without our fantastic supporters on Patreon. Cool. Coolio.